Greetings, listeners, and welcome to the Pop Apocalypse, a podcast that explores the mystical and the mythic, the paranormal and the psychedelic as it appears in popular culture. My name is Matt Dillon, and I'm a research associate at the Center for the Study of World Religions here at Harvard Divinity School. And on the podcast today, we are honored to have as a guest Paul Selig. Paul is a playwright creative writing teacher, and most notably, one of the most widely read spirit channels working today, which of course makes us ask, what is a spirit channel? And here we should back up a little bit. In her introduction to Handbook of Spiritualism and Channeling, uh, the great Kathy Gutierrez notes, spirit possession is one of the truly global religious phenomena. Um, no matter where or when you look, Individuals have cultivated sort of techniques for going into trance and then allowing some other voice to speak through them. Oftentimes it's full on like the movie Ghost where they take control of vocal cords, but can also be automatic writing where the hand moves while in trance. Um, in any case, what which spirits come through varies enormously. Again, this is a global phenomenon. Uh, and this can range from ancestors in... Uh, indigenous shaman communities to the Holy Spirit, inspiring Christians to speak in tongues. In 19th century America, there was this widespread enthusiasm for what we call spiritualism. In spiritualism, the mediums, typically but not exclusively women, would become possessed by a deceased person. And yes, some of them would be possessed by you know great figures from the past, uh, like Galen or something. But oftentimes it was an unknown person or somebody not too far in, in the memory of the person who was, who was doing the mediumship. Uh, in any case, that was an enormously popular movement from uh, the decades, about decade and a half preceding the Civil War, right up to near the end of the 20th century. Then starting in the 1950s, but exploding in popularity in the 70s, America helped spawn a new form of spirit possession, which we call channeling. Uh, as Hugh Urban notes, this the new technology that was in the ether, as it were, was quite important to this new terminology. The medium would tune into a different channel, radio, television, and pick up the transmission. While some, like Helen Schuchman, would claim to channel well-known figures like Jesus Christ, most channels would work with historically unknown figures, like Jane Roberts channeling Seth. And these oftentimes had never even been human. Uh, these were alien intelligences, often millennia upon millennia old. Now, saying that something is universal does not set aside how extraordinary uh, the phenomenon is. And as with all extraordinary phenomena, it leaves us with certain riddles, right? Uh, first, it's a universally distributed altered state. But why? Right. Uh, neurologically and culturally, that's a puzzle. Neurologically, what's the evolutionary adaptation in that? Uh, culturally, it's difficult to examine because it's so uh, diffuse and uh, so varied. It can be an official part of her tradition, right? Uh, as as we see with, uh, say, Oracle Adelphi, right? Or as we see in the book Radical Spirits by Harvard's own Anne Brody, the 
spirit possession can critique society and critique tradition and offer a voice to the disaffected uh, as it did in the 19th century for women who at the time were locked out of the economy and the right to vote and political representation. So it's this it's this really interesting puzzle. And another part of this puzzle, or maybe a different puzzle, let's say we bracket all the metaphysical claims. That's the only way we can really work with this. You know, otherwise we're we're in a mess where we're just taking down dictation from ancestors and aliens and historical religious figures where that's going to get us into trouble. Uh, but even assuming all that and putting it in brackets, we're left with this puzzle, right, of how this staggering creativity and eloquence and coherence can come out of somebody while in trance. Uh, it's befuddling. And this started to be noticed you know, almost from the beginning, but there's a great book, a really interesting book uh, by Theodore Flournois, From India to the Planet Mars. I think this is like 1902 or so. And there, Helen Smith, even if we set aside the fact that what she says about Mars was like wrong, uh, the fiction that comes out is amazing. Like it, it's one of the great high fantasies of the early 20th century um and you know, some of the, the theological ideas and philosophical ideas that start to infuse the later you know, 20th century channels particularly jane roberts or a course in miracles from helen shookman it's staggering to to think about that coming out of a person so immediately and uh you know, without pause, without breaks, and um, large sections. It's, it's pretty remarkable. Now, I don't have answers for any of these puzzles, which is why we are so fortunate to have on the show today Paul Selig. Paul has channeled 12 books from those he calls The Guides, which uh, the first book there was I Am the Word, published in 2009, and then in quick succession thereafter. As he comes to describe it, the books are transmitted section by section. So the guides say, we're going to have you sit down at 9 a.m. on this day, and we're going to speak, and we're going to you know, conclude that section, and that's going to be it for the day. Then next day, same time, do it again. And while this is coming through, for Paul, uh, as he describes it later, it is like fortune cookies, the fortune part, coming one by one with a sentence on it. And he sees the sentence and he whispers it. And then he reallocutes it much louder, sort of for the people in the back, as it were. And you know, phrase by phrase, the books come together. And then each of these seems to take about three weeks. In this interview, we'll talk with Paul about how he first came to recognize his channeling abilities and then develop them, the relationship that he sees between his creative writing and his mediumship, what happens in his mind during the channeling state, and then how Paul has come to review his early life and important episodes within it in light of his current abilities and what he does for a living now, which is channel these books. So without further ado, it is our honor to welcome to the show, Paul Selig.
So it is our incredible honor to have Paul Selig with us today, the renowned uh, channeler, uh, playwright, and teacher. So Paul, how are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. Excellent, excellent. So, so happy to have you on the show here. Um, we are quite literally in the shadow of Harvard Divinity School here. So I try to start each of these shows with the same question, which is, what was your relationship to religion like growing up? Right? Did you have a you know strong religious upbringing, a non-religious upbringing? How did that play out for you? It was a non-religious upbringing. Um, both of my parents, I assumed that we were just atheists. That's how I assumed our our lives. But my father had been a German Jew and mm. he was part of the kinder transport. He didn't believe in anything by the time he came to the States. And my mother who'd been, which I actually didn't know till recently, um, she had been a, a practicing Christian when she was young and had a, a rough encounter with the minister on her 18th birthday and that ended her relationship with all religions. So I grew up without it. I thought it was for other people. You know, I lived in Manhattan. We went to therapy. We didn't really go to <laughs> church or to synagogue. Oh, just quick follow up. Do you know what sort of uh, denomination or tradition your mother practiced? I, you know, I just, I heard that she, she passed recently, but oh, an old babysitter of mine wanted to meet her after many, many years. And I, I arranged the meeting and this woman sort of interviewed my mother when my mother just sort of poured all this stuff out. So I think she was initially a Catholic. I think she ended up being a Protestant. I really, I really don't know because we didn't talk about it. It wasn't something that was discussed in the home at all. And when I got into the work that I do now, nobody quite knew what to make of it. You know, myself included, really. Yeah, I, that's a really fascinating part of your backstory I hadn't heard before. Okay, so we were, we'll definitely wind there. So uh, non-religious upbringing, yeah. but people with, you know, as you've clearly shown, sort of spirit abilities later on in life, it's mm -hmm. pretty common for there to be either some sort of experiences that in retrospect, as you're a kid, yeah. show, oh, well, that's, that's pointing me in this direction. Dude. So what were those for you? Well, you know, the, the first one, which was the, the one that I, I still question, not the validity of it, but what actually happened was um, when I was about five years old, and it was an out-of-body experience where there was a being hovering over the side of my bed, and I was laying on my side sort of looking at it, and I just knew that it was sort of glowing gold, and, and there was, you know, intricate fabric on whatever it was wearing and then the next thing I knew I was floating on the ceiling looking at myself down in the bed engaging in this conversation none of which I heard because I wasn't in my body mm. for it um that was that was significant and um when I was about nine um I dreamt about walking up this strange stone flight of stairs to this fountain shaped sort of like a Coptic cross that was covered in autumn leaves and it, Technicolor, I never forgot it, I didn't know the place. And that was Goddard College where I ended up running a master's program. When I first saw the campus when I was 13 and that blew me away because I saw the steps and I saw the fountain. My family was traveling through Vermont at the time. And then when I was about 30, 31, I got a call asking me to interview there and there was the fountain. And in a lot of ways that was an important place for me personally and spiritually because my life was taking a very strange turn 
and I was having to question everything, but there was something about being, <clears throat> you know, back in this fountain that I had dreamt about when I was nine mm -hmm. that gave me a sense that perhaps I was where I was supposed to be. And in fact, I really do look at that time at Goddard um, as preparatory for what I do now, you know, in many, many ways. Yeah, I, I can't wait to dive in there because uh, one of the things that I really want to explore with you is this relationship between creativity and, and the channeling, uh, uh -huh. but want to sort of uh, get to there through a couple other questions as well. So you ended up teaching in the creative writing program. Do you remember when you first started writing, like your your sort of first piece? Yeah, in college. I started writing in college um, my freshman year. I didn't want to be a writer. I still really don't. And I'm I'm trying to work on a memoir now, but I had the worst writer's block of anybody I've ever known for many, many, many years. And um, I was, you know, teaching writing at NYU and I was running a writing program at Goddard and I, you know, it's what I did. But I started when I was in college and I Never, when I first began channeling and getting known for this, never really thought of a relationship between my own creative work and, and the sort of more psychic channel work until actually it was Jeff Kripal who asked mm -hmm. me that question. And, um, and then it made sense. You know, when I was writing, I was actually inducing trance without knowing that I was. I would put one piece of music on loop for hours and I would just sit there and write, you know, and that was the initial writing. So I didn't know what a trance was. I didn't know that I was inducing it. And I didn't know how clairsentient I was. You know, my channeling is one thing that I do. The psychic work that I do is a little bit different. I step into people. Mm -hmm. So I'm not a medium for the dead. I'm not going to hear necessarily your great uncle, but if your uncle's living in, you know, Poughkeepsie and you haven't talked to him for five years, I might be able to step into him, start to resemble him and hear. So I'm embodying at a certain level with whatever I'm doing. And that was happening in the writing as well without my thinking of it in those terms. Is that what brought you to write plays? No, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I got encouraged. I was encouraged my freshman year. You know, I think I was dating somebody who said, you should do this. So I said, okay, <laughs> I just did what I was told. And, um, but it was always about voices, really. It was never about narrative and story. That was always my weakness. But I could hear voices and I could I could give them a truthful rendering. You know, it's it's quite different than what channeling is for me. It's a very different process. The channeling isn't an emotional process. The writing was. And um, it was about becoming other people. I, I think of myself as a radio, yeah. you know, more than anything else. So when I'm channeling, I'm playing one station, I'm playing a broadcast that's specific and it does its job. And my job really is to be the spoken stenographer. And I, I look at it as stenography, really. It's not creative mm -hmm. in that kind of way. The psychic work is a little more creative because I'm embodying a bit more. I'm feeling what people are feeling and I'm having to give language to things that I see or I'm feeling or interpret a gesture that I may be making or a... Mm -hmm an expression. That's okay. I'm making an angry face. What's this about? Um, but they're different things. And how that relates to the writing, I don't know. I suppose I was a radio then. I just was playing a pretty low level station, you know. Yeah. You know, it wasn't it wasn't the happy stuff. 
Yeah, I, I was looking through your plays and it's it's different than yeah, what it eventually, quite different than what eventually came out in channeling. So if you didn't go to college to be a writer, what did you go to college? I did go. No, I did go to college to be a writer. I started writing in college my okay. freshman year. I was going to act and I hated that. Mm. And then I started writing um, and then I stayed writing um, mm. through college. And then I I went straight out of college to Yale and I got a master's in playwriting there, although I in retrospect, I was probably drunk for much of my graduate career. Um, As grad students do. Oh. I did a little better than other people, I have to say. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but that, so I was writing and um, I, I don't know. I mean, it was about when I look back at my old writing from those days, I was really always writing about transcendence. I just didn't know that that was my subject. It was always about people finding this other state of, of beingness, maybe perhaps through madness or mm. or something or other. It wasn't necessarily at all having to do with religion because religion was for other people. You know, it wasn't part of it wasn't on the menu of what I thought I was allowed. And, you know, I thought it was kind of for stupid people when I was growing up. It wasn't for us. I, I can hear how you and Vicky or Victoria Nelson, who has previously been oh. on the show, would have very much gotten along on that oh, front. Right. Uh, oh. The Secret Life of Puppets seems to resonate with what you're talking about quite a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, you're you're talking about the way transcendence worked into your plays. This brings me to soon after you got out of college, that's or your uh, MFA program. Mm -hmm. That's when the harmonic convergence was, correct? Yeah, that was a year later. Um, I got out of Yale. I was 25. I had a drinking problem and an incipient drug problem. And I looked like I was about to have this stellar, stellar career. You know, I was getting produced already in New York and London, and I was getting published. And, and basically, everything crashed down around my head at 25. I mean, I'd never been out of school. I'd worked in bars when I was in college. You know, I, I had relatively no skill set for the real world mm. and suddenly i was in new york and well basically what happened was i started praying that's really what happened for the first time in my life and um the first voice i heard told me to get my act together and how to do it and i listened to the voice and i actually stopped drinking that you know it's been 37 years or something now um and the harmonic convergence came shortly thereafter and i just heard that there were going to be people waking up that's what I heard. I said, well, if there is a God, and I was beginning to think maybe there was something like a God. And if you asked to be woken up, why would it want to say no? I mean, I didn't know any better. I really I just didn't know any better. So yeah, I had I had a bit of an experience the night um, before this, this cosmic event. Now, like there's a cosmic event every other Tuesday, it seems like, and I don't pay them much mind. But when I was 25, I really what is it was I was in a state a state of real I think openness to the possibility of something like God whatever that was and I welcomed it and I went up to the roof of the building that I was living in asking to be woken up mm -hmm. thinking that something could actually happen and in my case something did I'm not going to say it woke me up but it woke yeah. me up out of one thing into another possibility which has sort of anchored the life that I've lived since then yeah, I mean, you, I know you've written and spoken about the the night of the harmonic convergence yeah. many times, and 
uh, I mean, one, it's exceedingly beautiful, but it's also interesting to hear the way energies come up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Energies and auras and these things that would eventually start to come out much more fully uh, in the channeled work. But, you know, you have this, this very profound energetic experience, right? You know, I, somebody had given me a mantra. Somebody gave me a crystal. I thought you needed the props in those. Yeah. Yeah, I, just, I thought this is what you need to go wake up. So I was, I was trying to teach myself how to meditate and the mantra was Satnam. I didn't know what it meant. But it turns out it's a kundalini mantra and people said it sounded like I had a spontaneous kundalini awakening I don't know I sometimes think maybe I was just hyperventilating really all these years later but it was an experience of energy moving through my body out through the top of my head and my hands were clawed and you know it's it's a state that I've had a milder version of doing breath work than I had been there I just didn't know what the hell was going on I just knew that it was a palpable experience of something other and that I had asked for it and something was actually happening. And I think given where I had come from, which was a lifetime of skepticism, the idea that I could have an experience of something that was palpable was very, very helpful and useful. And then there were fruits to the experience. You know, I started seeing little lights around people shortly thereafter. And that was the beginning of this, this other kind of awareness. Yeah. Uh, so, and one of the things that I, I came upon, I was rereading I Am the Word in advance of this, and it just hadn't clicked for me before when I first read it, but uh, it's on like page 211. The guides point out that after that experience, you had like a very sad, dark sort of two years, right? And that's yeah. really both interesting, important, and humanizing, yeah. right? Because that's what happens after these these profound experiences. So if you want to unpack that at all. Well, I mean, I don't recall it being that time that I had, I, everything was falling apart at that time, truthfully, you know, for many, many reasons. I mean, I was newly sober. I was suddenly living in a world where, where there was this thing like maybe like God, which was just mind blowing to me. My friends thought I was nuts. I was seeing little lights around people. People thought I had a detached retina or a tumor. I was just, you know, I know what the hell was going on. And also it was, you know, to place it in time, it was the height of the AIDS epidemic in New York and my friends were dying all around me. And, you know, I had no money. I mean, I was really in, in a strange, perfect storm that I think allowed for what happened to happen. I think had I had a stronger mooring in who I was at that time, I might have had a different experience, but I was at a time where so much of everything that I thought was suddenly being challenged. You know, 23 year old friends of mine were in the hospital. It was a horrible, horrible, horrible time. The experience that I do recall, which was later, a few years later, I had um, a brief, maybe two, three day experience of of, of a heightened awareness that oh. came after a very, very difficult period where it felt like the pain that I was in was just gone. And I knew, and I was very poor, very, very poor. I, I knew that I was right where I was supposed to be. I had like 45 cents to my name and I knew I was fine. I knew everybody was fine. And that lasted for a few days and then it dissipated. And I felt terribly, terribly sad and betrayed after that because I thought I had arrived like there was, mm this payoff to having had such a rough time. 
But sometimes I think now about those kinds of experiences when they come is that they need to be integrated. You know, we have the big experience, but then people get attached to big experiences. And I think really it's about, well, now how do we integrate this and does this become part of our life? And in my case, I think it, it generally always has. But you kind of get to go back almost strange, I want to say, and earn it so that it becomes more practical and less exotic or less, you know, foreign, less, less trippy. You know, yeah. And that's one of yeah. That's one of the wonderful things about your channel works is just how direct and practical it is. It's not exotic in that way, right? Which a lot of them are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh it's also not uncommon for people who have had these sorts of experiences and not to exoticize, but just to sort of more them in reality a bit. Uh, you, especially coming from a skeptical background, try to figure out what the hell happened, right? Yeah. Like you have to go around, you go to workshops, you start to read books. So what were some of the things that entered into your world that made you go, oh, okay, this is I'm starting to be able to make sense of this in a way that doesn't make me think of detached retinas. You know, in my late 20s, early 30s, I did read. Um, I kind of stopped, you know, and I really don't read other channel stuff. When I was a grad student, I read half a set book in between, you know, bottles of NyQuil. Um, and I thought that was kind of amazing, but I didn't finish the book. And But I, I actually do think it cracked a window open that had been closed, that book. Um, so I read stuff and I read, you know, William James and I read some of the new agey stuff that was coming out around that time, which was useful and interesting. Um, and all of those things really did was give me permission. You know, I never got into deep esoteric occult study. It just wasn't my thing. And I think I was probably a little spooked by it. Um, Emmett Fox, you know, was a, a new thought writer that had a huge effect on me and that but that was big in 12 step land, you know, I had a therapist who shoved that book at me and, and much of what I feel the guides teach is in some kind of a court although the guides have now dictated 12 books through me, you know, and I only read the one of his. Um, so there, there were influences, but I think mostly more than anything else, I had people show up. I studied with an, a teacher at a certain point who was uh, teaching healing back at a time when everybody and their brother wasn't teaching healing. I mean, she was this lady had been one of the first 22 Reiki masters attuned in the U.S. by this woman named Takata. Mm. And who was a teacher, who was a, who was a protege of Dr. Usai, who brought through Reiki, and she was doing her own thing and she was formidable and she spooked me because she <laughs> was good I was like scared of this lady but I wanted to be like her um but I had people who showed up and I, and I have to say I'm very fortunate they've always shown up because I have to say I'm not a trained channel I'm not a trained psychic I don't I didn't know that I could do anything that I do until I was doing them and then I had to find some context or say somebody could say yeah this is what you're seeing or this is what this means and you know when I look at somebody and I feel the pain on my right side it's their left side too I'm like a mirror and I go oh thank god that's what that means you know I would because there's other people that that work this way um and I think I was fortunate that I was kind of grounded in 
recovery stuff still in those early days because my spirituality as I first encountered it was extraordinarily practical. It was a necessity. It wasn't about feeling special or being special. And I, it's one of my, my quibbles at times with um, spiritual stuff is that, you know, it becomes special. And I think um, actually it's less special than we think. I just think, you know, we don't know that we have permission to, to claim what's already ours in some ways. Mm. That's well put. Yeah. Um, so with that, um, did so you're studying with the Reiki master. Is that when you started to have the experience of being a uh, sort of channel for the living? Is that where that developed out of? Yeah. And she wasn't teaching Reiki. She was she had broken from that community, was doing her okay. own stuff, mm. which was the energy of the divine feminine, which now everybody talks about. But again, back then it wasn't discussed. There was this whole Mary component to what she was doing, but she was an old Scotch Irish lady, you know, and this was her thing. Anyway, I, I've been trying to write I've been trying to write about this time in my life myself. And so I've been thinking about her in this time. But yeah, I studied with her. You know, we take weekend here, a weekend there. I kept going. And then I got a call to volunteer at this place called the Manhattan Center in New York, which was providing services for people with life challenging illness. It was one of the pop ups that began in the AIDS epidemic to provide alternative services. And I found that when I had my hands on people's bodies, I started to hear things for them. And I started to feel what was going on in my own body. And it was provable, which I liked. You know, I could feel it, you know, and um, and and that's how that began. And once I began to trust that I was actually getting some valid information that was of some use to somebody, I started a little group that met in my apartment and it met there for about 18 years. You know, very, very under the radar. I wasn't looking to get a career doing this. I wasn't wanting to be known. You had to know somebody to come to the group, you know. But that's where I really began to be developed. And I really do think that I was being developed through mm. that time. It was in some ways a, a school for me, as well as the people that were there. Have this describing the the mediumship for the living i understand the empath that makes sense mm -hmm. yeah. um and then you know entities or i know you don't channel deceased persons but you know for some reason that is easier to wrap the brain around channeling living persons that's yeah. pardon it's so much easier i mean i you know for me it's an it's easy that's the easy yeah. thing and um <clears throat> and what i like about the living is that you can prove it. Mm. There's a show that I was on a few years ago uh, called On the Unexplained. It actually airs on Hulu now. I think you can find it when I was stepping into this woman's kid. I just met the woman, the camera crew came and she sat in my apartment and, and I sat into her, I just stepped into the name of her kid. I use the name as a coordinate, it's like psychometry. And you can see me somatize the kid's cerebral palsy, which I didn't know that he had and they intercut me mm. with the kid. And I didn't believe that I was really doing things at that level until I saw that because I just feel it, you know, I feel it. I don't get the confirmation. Somebody, unless somebody says, you look just like my uncle or you're doing this, you don't know what this means. My uncle's a skier, those are the ski poles, you know, that kind of stuff. It's physical for me. But <clears throat> my feeling about this is that people that still have a body are on one 
sort of radio station that's mm-hmm. easier for me to access. And the guides are this whole other one. People that are dead are on this other other station. Now I can get them and I do, but if you ask about your mom and she's crossed, I may step into your mom and I would get her as she was when she was here. And sometimes then I will get them as they are when they're there. The only time, sometimes it's happening and I don't know it. If I'm, if I'm reading for somebody and I see a guy who's dressed right out of Saturday Night Fever, I'm, I've learned to say, did you lose somebody who, you know, wore, you know, a puka bead necklace, you know, and a Kiana shirt? And she said, yeah, that's Frank. He's been gone since 82. You know, I like that. But the difference for me is hearing. I can sometimes see them. I can sometimes resemble them. I can report on things. But the clairaudience or maybe it's telepathic, but the ability to hear and work with language Mm-hmm. seems to be much more grounded in um, people that still have a body. And that includes, which is interesting to me, people in comas, locked in syndrome, kids that have never spoken, have been nonverbal. That's what happened in that TV episode, because I was hearing this kid and I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what was wrong. He kept saying, get me out of my body. Get me out of here. Get me out of here. I'm thinking, what the hell's going on? Mm-hmm. Turns out he'd never spoken. You know, that was the first utterance. Oh, and it was un- upsetting. Yeah. But I didn't know what was going on. And I lost my hearing during, I said, is, is he deaf? And the mom is saying, I don't know. And I'm going, how the hell does she not know? She's got a 13-year-old kid. But she didn't know because the kid didn't have language. So that's easier for me because it's physical. And um, I just call it stepping in. You know, you're just stepping into somebody else. And you become them when you do that. You know, I always have to say it's not psychic spying because I think we're at levels of conversation on higher levels all the time we just don't know it Mm. and it uh and this can come up around the channeling too but it raises so many interesting questions about personhood right so i can we we're having this conversation right now but ostensibly somebody could be you know channeling matt right in a in a different space right uh so have you ever actually that's an interesting question have you uh, reached back to somebody who you channeled for someone else and said, what was your experience like at this time that I was doing the channeling? Did they have any awareness or strangeness or? People report. I mean, when I do a lot of groups and when I do the groups, I'm doing a lot of readings and short ones. It's different yeah. than being with a client, you know, on a Zoom call or something like that. Um, so I often hear the reports from them about what they're experiencing. Sometimes the energy that the guides I work with show up with come in very specific ways and people can have their own experiences. And I'm far more interested in people having their own experiences of this stuff than deferring to whatever mine is. Mm-hmm. But have I gone back to somebody and said, what was it like during the reading? No, I don't think I have unless they want to have another session and tell me what they felt. And occasionally I'll get stuff like that. And often it's just, it didn't make any sense what you were saying. And now it does, um, you, know, you know, like that dog, you said, I was going to adopt. It's in my lap now. I mean, just as you know, things like that happen, you know, but that's not a big deal. Speaking of, is, is your dog around? Cause I always okay, see, I've got two of them. I've got okay. Lily and my, and my mom died. So I have her dog oh. now. She's under, my dog is under the desk. My mom's dog. Lily, I don't know where she is. She may be outside. It's pretty today. It does look Once. nice. It sure looks nice. I'm just used to seeing you with uh, one of the dogs on your lap. So, wow. yeah, uh, which which is lovely. Um, 
so yeah this is great um before getting into the channel stuff i want to ask one more question about just like pre-life which is you had this whole career both at nyu and at goddard right so what was it like navigating those two worlds where you're developing these psychic abilities and you're having these workshops and you're also completely professional putting on in publishing plays teaching how did that sort of function for you it's much less graceful than you just described it. Um, <laughs> you know i you know i started off adjuncting at nyu and then i got a real job there eventually but I was just so grateful to be able to buy dinner in those days, you know, and Goddard, which is an old hippie school, when they found out that I did this stuff, they said, well, why aren't you doing it here? And I said, are you crazy? And they said, no, this is Goddard. You don't leave any parts of yourself behind. So suddenly I, I had permission to start integrating this part of myself into my academic life, you know, probably for better and for worse, but I was learning. Um, when I was, when I, I began teaching at NYU when I was like 27. Okay. And I was excited and opening up spiritually. And I used to teach the students how to see auras on a, on a low, low teaching day. We had extra time. And then I started showing up on my evaluations. I learned about Aristotle and now I can read an aura. And I thought, oh God, I got to stop this. So I did. <laughs> um, and I just did my thing. And it wasn't until the book started coming out, which was in 2010, that I really couldn't hide anymore, you know? And finally what happened was, I think that there was enough, at least at NYU, there was enough video of me channeling online that the students would show up and they'd go, look at this guy, you know? And none of it was mean. Mm. My favorite was when I had to tell the kids that, that some a TV crew wanted to film me at NYU. And I had to get permission from my chair, who I didn't think knew, and he didn't seem to care. He just said, good, go for it. You know, and I was like, well, this is interesting. I had to go tell a class of NYU freshmen. I said, I don't know if you know about this about me. And they said, oh, yeah, we know. Yeah. <laughs> they knew they were just being really sweet and really polite. And they all dressed up the day the camera crew came. And they mm -hmm. pretended to be They pretended to be, be interested when I gave them a lecture that they'd heard like two months before in front of the crew. So, I, you know. People don't care as much as you think, at least when you're in the arts, it's not that big a deal anymore. But when I started off, I had a website without my name on it mm -hmm. or without my photograph. I didn't want people to find me. And, um, you know, I had to make a choice, I think, when the books started coming to publish them with my name, you know, even though I'm not the author. And I agreed to do that. And that wasn't a, a bad move to do. Oh, certainly not. Uh, interesting. So uh, that brings us here. How did the first book start? So I am the word, where does that come from? What's the the gestation for going from doing these things in workshops to we're going to write a very thick book? Well, I when I was when I was 48, which was must have been 2009, 2008, something like that. I quit smoking. I had been a four pack a day guy for most of my adult life. I loved it. And, um, but the guides one day said, we want to keep working with you, but until you attend to this, we can't. And I quit, oh. you know, immediately and I quit. And when I did, my work changed enormously. The psychic of the channel work changed completely, which is, that's when they began to lecture. Hmm. I was hearing stuff. Most of the work for me was about the energy that would come through when they were channeling, you know, which was palpable and they were working with energetic attunements and 
it was a big energetic event, but I wasn't that interested in what they were saying because I thought, well, you can't fake the energy, you know, the energy we can all feel, but who knows what this is that I'm saying. I'm just saying what I'm hearing. But once I began to take the dictation, um, a friend of mine found out that I wasn't recording and transcribing, so I started to. And then I got hired and fired from a writing gig, and I went to bed. And Victoria Nelson, who was a colleague of mine at Goddard, um, I think I've been in bed for two days already, and she called me up and said, Paul, this might be a very good time for you to write that book about, or write that memoir about how you became clairaudient. And I said, well, I'm never going to write again, and I meant it. And then the guides piped in and said, well, we have a book to write, and if you take two weeks, we'll do it. And at that moment, my ego had just been quashed. Um, I had extra time that I wasn't planning on using. I think it was winter break or something at NYU. And, um, and I agreed. And two days later, we met on the phone and the guides dictated this book called I Am The Word. And it took like two weeks and two days because I took two days off to go back to NYU to teach. So I took two days off from the two weeks, so it's a little over two weeks. And they said, this is the first, this, they said this is a number of things. They said, you know, this is the first book in a, in a, in a trilogy. Mm -hmm. They said, it's going to be published. It's the first publisher who reads it and don't haggle. <laughs> and, um, and it's everything that pretty much happened yeah. with that. Um, but that, it wasn't planned. I didn't really know. I just showed up. I showed up. I put a CD recorder on the arm of the chair. I had my dog in my lap. I had two iced coffees on the floor and I just step back and I allow what, what's always happened. It's the same thing. I hear one phrase repeated and I give voice to that one phrase and the rest of everything just tumbles out on top of it until the guide says, stop now, please, which means that's the end of the lecture. That's the end of the dictation. It took me longer to type the thing up than it did to dictate it. And it wasn't until it was all typed up that I saw that it really was a book. You know, because I didn't know if it would hold together at all. And it really does. Uh, so uh, you brought up the energy there, and I wanted to follow up on this, because one of the things that I love uh, about your works are, and the guides speak to this, that there's the level of information, the words, and mm -hmm. then that's kind of like a sheath for this energy transmission. Yeah. Right? And, you know, people who listen to this and, you know, are scholars of mystical literature like are used to those sorts of transmissions really? in a way, but you're work so hard for them, right? Because you're learning primary languages and you're learning complex philosophy. This is so straightforward, but it still has all of that uh, in this, this really, really um, palpable way. So you feel those energies as they're coming through as well or, or not actually? I'm in it when it's happening. Yeah. So at times when they're doing an attunement, I still feel it. When I do them live in live streams and, or public workshops, I can feel the energy in the attunements as they're, as they're delivered. But when they're channeling, basically, I'm sort of, it's not like I'm them. I'm receded. I feel the energy shifting. But what they've said is that the books are operating on two levels, the words in the page and then the energy that informs them that the real book is the energetic transmission. And the, the language gives it context. I'm so busy when I'm channeling, trying to keep up with the next phrase that I, that's really, I'm so singular when I'm working 
because I hear, I whisper and I repeat, I bang, 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 bang. It's like a thousand fortune cookies, one after the next in order. And I'm just trying to keep, and sometimes so, so fast, they, the, the transcriptionists have to slow down the recording to be able to work with it. But, um, you know, when the very first book came out and nobody knew who I was, and the guide said, you know, this is a book that will be experienced more so than read. And people started reviewing the books. And it was really interesting. People said, I'm reading this book and I'm seeing auras. I'm reading this book and I'm feeling energies, you know. And and people started having their own experience with this stuff, which is what the guides had intended. So, you know, that's how it's been really since they've begun. And it's what I like about the work, you know. They're, they're, they're claiming us in some kind of an agreement to what they know to be true in a way that we can have our own experience with. I so, you know, I'm not a spiritual teacher. I'm not a guru. I have no desire to be either of those things. I've gotten better at trying to interpret the teachings when people ask Paul questions. I've gotten over the years, I've gotten better at that. But um, yeah, that's how the books work. I mean, they're, they are transmissions. So I didn't know that there's a legacy of this in, in mystical literature, but I've been, you know, I don't, I don't know this stuff, you know. Yeah, I, but it, just to repeat, it's just how direct it is, is really, really interesting and, and special. Um, you know, there's no sort of backflip hermeneutics that you have to get to it. It just sort of transmits, which is wonderful. Um, so I, I guess now that we've talked about them uh, over you know several minutes, who do you understand the guides to be? Who are the guides? Well, the only reason they're called the guides is because my ex many years ago, when he found out I could do this, used to say, ask the guides this, ask the guides that. That's why they're called the guides. It was easy. The name that they've claimed when they say, if you wish to call us something, you may call us Melchizedek, which is an old name and a priesthood. Sometimes they call themselves the true self, mm -hmm. which is another way that they use the term Christ. They say that Christ is the aspect of the creator that can be realized in form. Sometimes they call it the monad or the true mm -hmm. self. Um, I'm uncomfortable with the names only because this stuff tends to be very heavily laden with history and also in the new age and i'm not a good new ager truthfully um i i hear some you know back when i was just opening up you'd hear things like you know there's an archangel michael channeling on the upper west side but you better go to gowanus in brooklyn and hear gabriel that's the hot one and it was like <laughs> this is kind of ridiculous you know mm -hmm. so i used to think you know it's really just the energy it's the it's the it's the energy and and the truth of the teaching that matters anybody can call themselves anything the the, the one that i've seen you know that i've seen on a few occasions that's come through in a very visual way seems to resemble that archetype um it's an interesting you know presentation to say the least um and i recognize him in a, in a in a profound way when i see him it's like oh here it is you know this is it um but that's the name you know for better or for worse and so is the one you've seen from time to time do you think it's or does it um, click for you as the same one you saw when you were five? I think so. Mm. 
you know, and that's my feeling now when I go back to that. And I was just asking somebody else, and I was asking another psychic about this. I said, what do you get on this one? Because I'm, I'm trying to unpack some of this for myself now that I'm, I'm trying to do a little bit of my own writing about my life. And I, I think sometimes that if I was prepped for something, that was it. I mean, I was a weird kid, granted, but I also was firmly convinced that thoughts were things when I was a child. And I, you know, and so much so that my that thoughts were frightening to me, mm. you know, it was really, and it wasn't, it was, I mean, maybe now you'd say it was OCD or rumination, but it was not easy stuff that I showed up with. And, um, and I sometimes wonder if I wasn't being told, you know, hang in there, you know, there's, there's work to be done, but I don't know, maybe mm. one day the the great revelation uh, at some point to sort of identification um so i want to talk a little bit about or unpack with you what the guides teach right and it's certainly evolved over time but you know it seems to me the most basic fundamental idea there is this humanist too right there's this conscious self and then there's the christ self or the conscious mm -hmm. self or something like that um yeah so Anyways, um, yeah. So, what would you say their their fundamental message is? Sorry to ask a big question. I don't, I'll try. I mean, yeah. I, I think sometimes it's the same. Really, I think they may have been unpacking the same message since the first book, in, in different, in an escalation of, of of understanding and awareness. Um, they seem to be speaking to the realization, which is the knowing and the embodiment of what they call the divine self or the God within. And, you know, when I was in my early 30s, and I always have to say I'm 99% sure I heard this in channel because I was just really opening and I didn't understand this and I wrote it down because I was struggling at the time. And I heard freedom will come when the throne relinquishes its king. And I thought, what does that mean? But that's the essence of the teaching when I look back at it, which is who sits in the throne, who's running the show. And they say that the personality self or the idea of who we are is completely indoctrinated through a false lens of separation. So our memory individually and collectively is actually shadowed by a belief that we're separate from one another and from source. And we've accrued all of this evidence to that. But they say that the denial of the divine is the only real problem humanity faces. And that's not a religious thing. It's an awareness of the God within. So the teachings from I am the word are all have always, always been about the manifestation of the divine self as can be known in form. And, you know, they don't talk about I don't know. I mean, I think it's 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 probably I used to well, let me put it this way. Jeff Kripal said, because we taught together once at Esalen, which was fun, because the guides would debate him at times. I don't know if he liked it. They were oh my fun. gosh, that's wonderful. Is there a video of this? I would love to watch it. There this. might well be from that time. Yeah. I remember Jeff might know because he was running he was running the thing. Yeah. But on the nature of evil and things like that. I mean, the guides yeah. when the only other person they've ever done this with is is uh Charles Eisenstein, who's a philosopher, the guides have debated with Charles too. It's just funny, you know, they like it. They seem to enjoy it when they go there. 
So Jeff used to say that the teaching was Gnostic. He said, this is a Gnostic mm -hmm. teaching. Victoria Nelson, who was actually on the phone with me for the first two or three books, she was the active listener. I was recording, she was taking her own notes. And she said it um, was not a Gnostic teaching. It was, what's the other one? Hermetic. She said it's a Hermetic yeah. teaching because they're dealing with form and the body and manifestation. And they are increasingly so in their books. You know, they work with these energetic claims. I know who I am in truth. I know what I am in truth. I know how I serve in truth. And they say these things are claimed by the divine within, not the personality self. And they said once to a student early on who seemed who thought he had the teaching, oh, I get this, we become the Christ. And they jumped in and they said, no, you don't become the Christ, the Christ becomes you, which mm -hmm. is a very different paradigm of realization, of allowing the divine essence to express itself through you. And they say that's how one serves, is to be most fully expressed is what they call the true self. And that doesn't come at the cost of the personality, it comes as the personality self is acclimated to the higher. It's not about ridding ourselves of our humanity. It's about renowing the humanity as part of God as well. Mm -hmm. In that debate, I side with Vicky for what it's okay. worth. Really? I, That's I, interesting. I, yeah, and especially since I'm Jeff's student, but uh, I, I, because I'm assuming what Vicky is pointing out is there's not like this, this sharp dualism in anything that's coming from the guides. All right. And embodiment is on no level. It doesn't seem bad in, in any of those teachings. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, although the the Christ itself does definitely uh, resonate with certain of the ancient texts, for sure. Uh, mm -hmm. Speaking of. So you have this uh, uh, sort of outsider's experience of religion uh, mm -hmm. growing up and Jewish father. What was it like when you started talking about the Christ self in the channel literature? Or when it started to come out of you? Yeah. It was uncomfortable a bit. But, you know, I mean, I had my encounter with some of the new thought teachers, mm -hmm. you know, and they would use that term. But I think that they were reclaiming it. And the guides have said, you know, they're reclaiming language that's been abused or, 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 or utilized wrongly you know, when they use some of this stuff. Um, there was somebody who wrote me um, after the first or second book came out and said, you have to tell your guys to stop using that word Christ. It's offensive to many people and you have to, you know, and then that's and somebody else wanted all of the, all of the books rewritten in gender neutral language. Um, and, and the answer was always, you know, I don't write these books. They're, it's, 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 it's not mine to fix. It's not mine to edit. I mean, there's maybe three words edited in any of the, the book, any of the most recent books. In the earlier, maybe a little more, but only because I stumbled more, I think, you know, and that's usually an S that's been added to a word that didn't need to be pluralized, you know, so it's the books are the books are clean transcriptions. So I don't know. Yeah. So speaking of your role in this, one of the things that makes you both really captivating to watch and to read is if you're reading it on the page, in some sense, you're like a character, right? In, in the sense that they're like, so Paul right now is seeing a well, yeah. right? And they're describing your response to the well. And, or yeah. you might, they might go, oh, Paul is very uncomfortable with what we're talking about right now, mm -hmm. right? So 
there's a lot of things that you could talk about in relation to that, but I'm curious why they decided to keep all that in, right? Because uh, so uh, much I'll... Chandler's literature is direct. This is much more personal in a way. In some ways, I think I'm like the student in the first row mm. that they can't avoid. And I'm being used. It's my vocabulary. At times, I think their vocabulary is better than mine because we have to look up words once in a while to see if they've been used properly. Um, in the very first book, I didn't do much of that. I am the word. And in the, in the very first section of the first book, there's an odd little passage which says something like, this is not a book that's been written before. This is not a course in miracles. Yeah. And people said, what are you guys talking about the course in miracles for? The only reason that's in the book is they said, this is not a book that's been written before. This is not a course in miracles. And I'm thinking in the background, oh yeah, what about a course in miracles? And they answered the question in the mm -hmm. text. And what they learned to do is if I intrude, they will address the intrusion sometimes they'll just dispense with it. Paul has a question, we will not take it now. For the most part, they do. And they unpack it to the extent that I can continue to work comfortably. I think it was in one book, it might've been the book of mastery. They started off one section going, you know, something like, you know, nothing is real and i went okay i understand that people talk about that stuff and then the next section they said and now today we'll talk about how everything is real and i panicked because i thought that they were contradicting their own teaching which i don't think they'd ever done and i thought there goes the whole book it's just done and it didn't but it was jeff who actually explained to me at the time oh yeah that's um meister eckhart was talking about this and i go okay that's as long as there's some kind of context for some of this stuff so the intrusions are mine. I'm told by people who like the books that it's helpful for them. I'm, off, I'm often asking their questions, mm. um, but nothing's edited. That's really the, the only thing that was edited in one of the books was when the UPS guy kept buzzing my buzzer when I was trying to channel and I was cursing. And the guy had said, we will dispense with this today. We'll do it again tomorrow. And we lost a little section, which was really good. But I was just too upset by the by the noise to be able to go back in and step out of the way enough to bring them through. And in terms of that that dynamic as well, uh, when you are when you're channeling them, you do the whisper and then you know you elocute, right? Mm -hmm. You make it much louder. Is that something that you're aware of what your body is doing and your voice as you're doing it? Because I know you're a conscious channel. But... Yes and no. Both are true. In some ways, what I'm just doing is raising the volume on, on what I just heard on the repeat. When I very when I started doing this initially, and this is 30 years ago, I used to feel like somebody was pressing their lips against my forehead and impressing the words in, and then I would form the words with my my lips. And the whispering was the initial delivery, and I was I was whispering, and then I'd have to repeat what I heard. Nowadays, I occasionally work without the repetition. The challenge for me is when I do that, I don't remember anything that I've said. I mean, and it, there's, and it actually just becomes reduced to sound. It's almost like at a certain point, I'm just making noises. And 
I don't know if there have been words attached. And I find that a little out of control myself. This way I get to interrogate the teachings myself a little bit. And maybe I'm just still being developed. I mean, what they've said to me at times is their energy is so vast that this is how I can, I can be parsed through me. You know, it's, it's not like when I'm reading you or I'm reading somebody else and it's just like a voice in the living room. That's not how this is experienced. It's a very, very different thing and it comes fast and it's very immediate and it's very direct. And my job is to keep up with it. And if I start to presuppose where they're going to go with a sentence, which has been known to happen, like when I want to finish the sentence the way I think it's supposed to be thought, you know, twas the night before Christmas and all through the, you just want to fill in the blank. They've learned to switch the language up on me so that I have to stay present. So twas the night before Christmas and all through the pantry, you know. <laughs> back in. Back, back on yeah. target. There you go. No, I actually think it's, it makes it really captivating in a way. I know you're repeating the same thing, but it makes it feel dialogical, right? Watching, so there's this back and forth and there's this rhythm to it. Um, really appreciate when you're watching other channels and it's just that that direct, right? Um, it's different, but it's good. So the guides, I, I believe they've said before uh, that they weren't human. Right. They didn't have like a past human life and get here. But for us, right, they speak a lot about reincarnation um, is the the long term goal of this reincarnation and learning to become ascended masters and guides like them. Or uh, is there something else in view? They say some of us have been informed, some of us have not. So they're they're playing both sides. Some of them have had bodies. Some of them have not. Is what I've understood of the collective that they they come through with. They don't talk about becoming like they, they, this is what they've said about who they, my favorite thing they ever said about who they are. They say, we are who you are. We are who you become when you know who you are. And that's what they describe themselves as, but they don't talk. I mean, they do talk about Carmen. They do talk about ongoing learning, but it's not the focus of their teaching, you know, and, um, you know, my slight memories that I have of other stuff are inclusive of some of this kinds of work, but I, you know, I don't spend my time dining out there either. And so they, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. So there's, there's a certain, ur there's a certain urgency to their teaching. So why, why did they say now? What what's important about now as the reason, the time for this to come across? Well, they've said this since the very first book, and they said humanity is at a time of reckoning, and a reckoning is a facing of oneself and all of one's creations, and that everything that's been created in fear needs to be renown in a higher way. I also think, and they've said as much, that we have the means to blow ourselves to kingdom come now. If we choose to. And they say that the idea that we create bombs to keep ourselves safe is ridiculous because eventually they go off. That's the purpose of the bomb. Um, and I hear we're going to make it. That's what they've said. And they've said that consistently for the last number of years. But I think that this is the time. And, uh, you know, they've been pretty on it 
when you look at the books and when the books were delivered and then what was sort of happening in the world around that time or shortly after that time, it's really interesting to see that they've been on target with the stuff. I mean, they said, and it was the Book of Truth, which was delivered before a couple of presidential elections ago when, when things went a certain way. And they said, you know, what's about to happen is that everything that's been buried is coming to the surface. And that means five years ago and 5,000 years ago. And things don't get brought to the surface because they need to be blamed, but they need to be seen because nothing is transformed until it's first seen. You can't bring the light to something that you're seeking to hide in darkness. So we were in a process of excavation. They said, imagine that your backyard is now an archeological dig and this is what life is going to be like for all of you. And right before that election, which was the Trump-Clinton election, three days before I was channeling in somewhere in the Midwest, and they, they delivered a lecture. It's actually, that one's up online. They called it Great Change, or we called it Great Change because we had to give it a title. And it said, your idea of choice is I'm going to have the milk or the cream in my coffee, and what's about to happen is that the table that carried the milk and the cream is about to get toppled over. <laughs> That's what you're in for now. <laughs> And that's was what we had, really, when you look at it. So. Absolutely. Yeah, The that's another thing that it's really I appreciate about, about these guides is they have a sense of humor from time to time, right? It, yeah, it, occasionally it comes out. Uh, it's, they're not full-on earnest all the time. Um, so uh, you've spoken a number of times now about how, you know, you're the student in the front row. Right. You're a student of these teachings, not the guru, for sure. Um, so how has it changed you then being the student, right? Uh, over, I guess you started channeling the these works in 2009. So how has how have you evolved as Paul Selig? Well, I'm living a completely different life than I used to. Um, I don't walk around feeling that I've ascended. There is a quote attributed to Helen Schuchman, who channeled A Course in Miracles, where she says, I don't believe it, but I know it's true, which I like a lot because I understand that feeling. I am not the best student of their work, but I think I'm a good one. And I'm good in the ways that I understand that I can work with the teachings in immediate ways which is like not making choices based in fear. They say the action of fear is to claim more fear. They say you can't be the light and hold another in darkness. I'm aware of when I do those things and how they harm me. And I'm aware that how I hold anything in my awareness contributes to the thing in the form that I claim it in, this terrible thing, that wonderful thing, you know, and how as the guides say, we're collectively creating a reality through our belief in what should be there and what we've been told to expect and how that can be altered. So I live a very, I'm in a very different life now. I'm, I'm much more peaceful, but it's not at 100%. Um, I don't know that I would have gotten into this stuff had I been so happy initially. It was not that I was seeking an escape from something. I was seeking a way to manage it. You know, that's what life was like. So, you know, I left my academic life maybe nine years ago now or something, and I walked away from two full-time appointments, you know, at an age when people are thinking about retiring, you know, and are getting ready to think about it. And um, I, I do this work now. It's what I do. I accept that it's what I do. 
I feel that my job in this work is to show up for it. That's my job. I show up and often when I don't want to, when I show up and I understand that I may never understand it, or I may not be the person who realizes it fully. There was a time, maybe, maybe seven or eight years ago, and I was in, I was really down and I was working with this, uh, this woman from Agape Church, Amy Perry. She's a lovely prayer minister type. And she said, I'm going to ask your guides what's up with you. And it's because I can always hear for myself, but if somebody's asking the question, I can step out enough to render the answer clearly and without it being what I want to hear. And the guide said, you know, Paul's job is to hold the door open for others. And we both went, oh, that sucks. You know, that's not what I, that's awful. What terrible <laughs> guides I must have. And maybe a year later, they were channeling at the Essel Institute and they said, the door is open and everybody gets to come now. Come, come, come. And they, that's when they introduced this concept of the upper, up the upper room, which is what they teach now, which they call basically Christ consciousness, but it's a level of vibration that they say is available. And, and they said, and Paul, you get to come too now, which was really quite something. And since then, my life is completely different. You know, I live on Maui now. I, I have community, which is loving and kind. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm surprised some days because, you know, I didn't think this would end up being me. And I, I never thought this is what I would end up doing with my life. Mm -hmm. Maybe at a certain point, but it was not on my plan for myself. I didn't even necessarily believe in channeling, you know, early on. I, and I think some of what passes for channeling isn't that's out there in the world. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of a picky about that. I think yeah. true channeling is stenography. It's not about zeitgeist. It's not about the trend of the moment. It's not about who killed princess die. It's not the stuff that people like to attach to because it's kind of sexy and fun. Um, and I think the truth of the channeling always has to be the channeling itself and how it changes people or works with people or supports people in their own lives. That's it. Yeah, that's really well put. Um, so it, this is just a personal question, but did you, when you were making the move from New York to Hawaii, did you consult with the guides at all? Did they say, no, that would be great? Or was that just a, that's I didn't just a plan on coming here at all. I didn't plan this at all. This was the biggest gift ever. I was channeling in Costa Rica and I had done a, some live stream where the guides had said, there's a big event coming to the world and it's going to hit New York very, very hard. And I said, I don't want to be in New York. I said this online and there's got to be a tape of it someplace. I said, please just let me be someplace pretty, not in New York and someplace pretty when it happens. And, um, and I was in Costa Rica channeling for a week when New York shut down during COVID. It shut down like four days after I was there. I couldn't go home. Mm. And um, I had a friend who was on Maui and I didn't know what else to do. I couldn't, I didn't know where to go. And he said, come to Maui. And I had been to Hawaii, the state once in my life on a really terrible blind date with a dolphin instructor. <laughs> <laughs> Dolphin, <laughs> dolphin communicator. I came all the way. Yeah. We didn't do very well. I said, I'm never going back to Hawaii again as long as I live. And I ended up on Maui. And I have to say, 
you know, I never went home, really. I mean, the guides used to say in workshops sometimes, people used to say, well, we've had this great high experience, but what do we do when we get home? And the guides say, who says you have to go home? You're choosing that, you know? You always think you're supposed to do things. Once they told a whole group of women, you can all leave your husbands, they screamed. And then they laughed because they weren't telling them to leave. They were saying, you know, you can if you want to. And I never went home. It's happened to me. My dog was left in New York. My stuff was in New York. I had an apartment I never got to spend a night in two that I had just, just rented. Hmm. I was here through all that. And then I stayed. And it's a funny thing, you know, I, um, I ended up being sort of welcomed by, through a lot of serendipitous, strange things, the community, the satsang that built up around Ram Das. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I was, it's a very weird story, but so there's some other hand in this whole thing, including, you know, floating off at Esalen, you know, during a, a bodywork session and seeing a giant monkey staring down at me and saying to the guy, well, I'm seeing a giant monkey staring down at me. Yeah, I was chanting to Hanuman before I came here. So now I'm, I'm, I'm with the Hanuman crowd here on a, on a beautiful island and feel myself very, very, very fortunate. That is wonderful. <laughs> that that was really really great. The also blind date dolphin instructor on Maui is like a really great Mad Lib. Like you, it just sort of fills that pretty, in. Yeah, that is pretty sharp. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're we're all very happy that you've landed uh, someplace like this. And just to close out, um, where it, it sounds like what's on your front burner right now is this memoir. That's what I'm doing now for the next few months. I, I, we'll see. It's the first writing of my own that I've done in 12 years. Easy, you know, and I'm having to face those demons of, oh, my God, can I still do this? But that's what I'm doing now. But I still channel online every week, yeah. you know, and I do a live stream intensive once a month and I'm traveling again. So I'll be, be this spring. I do something here on Maui, a big event, and then some stuff in Europe and stuff around the country. I like to, I like to travel with this still. Mm, wonderful. All right. Well, Paul Selig, thank you so much for coming on Pop Apocalypse. It's been a pleasure. Um, yeah. And uh, enjoy the beautiful weather out there in Maui while those of us in the Northeast are slipping around on ice and you know, trying not to shiver too much. Well, thank you for having me. It was fun. Thank you very much. 